everyone, and welcome to Strip Search, the comic strip podcast. I am Pete Chianka, and I am here with Dave London. How are you, Dave? I'm doing very well, Pete. Thanks. You're doing very well this November? This November, yes. Well, November is a very special month here at Strip Search. Do you know why that is? Uh, I, I think I know why it is. It doesn't have to do with turkey, does it? Uh, no. It is, in fact, our one-year anniversary wow. of this podcast. We've been doing it a year. This is episode 13. I've made an executive decision to declare this our second season. So this is season two, episode one. And I think it's going pretty well. Is this when one of us gets replaced with Cousin Oliver? <laughs> We're going to be bringing in Sam Waterson, I think, to, to take over. But uh, we couldn't have done it without you folks out there downloading and listening. And uh, I know I've, I've learned a ton as the non-artist in this duo. Uh, I met some amazing people and really, really talented folks, and I've learned a lot about comic strips and illustration and how people go about their work, and I hope you guys out there have too, and you'll, you'll keep listening. We are going to, in a very short time, have, have a conversation with Merrick Bennett, who is an illustrator, a cartoonist, a musician, a teacher. He has a lot to talk about, so we want to get to him fast. But before we do, wanted to let you know that next month, you'll be able to hear us talk to cartoonist James DeMarco, who does Small Saves, which is a hockey-themed comic strip. You a hockey fan, Dave? I actually am a hockey Still fan. following those whalers? I, I'm still hoping they make a comeback. <laughs> Any day now. Maybe they'll come back to Hartford and we'll get going again. <laughs> yeah. They have a, you have a hat, right? I do. I do. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's, it's, that's cute. The Brass Bonanza is the best fight song ever. <laughs> I'm sure it is. We'll, we'll, we'll have a link to that if it exists anywhere out there on the line. Um, and also, we always like to uh, plug our friends at Comic Strip Cartoonist Magazine. They featured us in their last edition, and they have a new edition out, which is equally full of interesting comic strip features and talks with cartoonists. And you can find out about that and all of these things at our website, petpeevescomic.com slash podcast. So please visit and check those out. But without further ado, after a very short break, we'll be back with Merrick Bennett. Okay, we are back at Strip Search, the comic strip podcast, with our very special guest this month. We're very excited uh, to sit down with Merrick Bennett, who is a, an illustrator, a cartoonist, a teacher, a musician, a very, very accomplished individual, and the author of The Civil War Diary of Freeman Colby, which is uh, his most recent work. Uh, Merrick, thank you for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me. I just want to jump right in and talk a little history. Okay. <laughs> and I know you've done a lot of different things, but the Freeman Colby book, which is based on an actual Civil War diary, right? Mm-hmm. And I actually started reading it without looking at the introduction. And I was like, wow, this is a really fascinating story that Merrick has come up with here. <laughs> and then I turned back and said, wait a minute, this is an original. Uh, so how did you uh, get this idea and, and approach the idea of sort of making history come to life that way? Well, I go... I go pretty far back in that I, I've done I've drawn a lot of different comics. I've drawn sci-fi, space adventure, fantasy comics, mm-hmm. a lot of autobio comics. And I got into drawing travel comics where I go someplace and draw what happened day to day. And from that I got into, well, more than just my own experience traveling, where am I and what are the local stories around this? Um, what's the regional history? What are the stories people tell each other about the place? And uh, so I was doing that in Eastern Europe, and I came back to, this is the medium-length answer, I came back to New Hampshire, and I realized, 
wait a minute, I've never actually done that where I, in this place where I grew up. So uh, while I was working on my, my, a couple graphic novels ago, I went down to the local historical society and I just asked them one day, I'm kind of interested in, oh, I don't know, the Civil War. Let's say I've been reading some Civil War books and uh, do you have anything from the Civil War? And they said, well, let's pull down some boxes from the shelf. And we got down a couple of those cardboard gray boxes and pulled out all these old newspaper clippings. And then I pulled out this little packet of pages that said, Diary of Freeman E. Colby. And I said, what is this? Has anybody read this? And they said, no, no, I haven't read that, but I should read it sometime. You know, <laughs> you know, we don't even know what's in our own gray boxes in our historical societies sometimes, or in our own attics, right. or family history albums. Um, so I said, well, if you make me a copy, I'll take it home and check it out. And I, from the first paragraph, which you probably saw when you started reading, where he says, uh, he says, well, I was, a, I was 21 years old. I was a substitute teacher. And basically, I was so tired of fighting with my students all the time, I needed a break from teaching. So he ends up enlisting in the 39th Mass Regiment. And from that, the first couple paragraphs, I was like, wow, this guy has a story to tell. And he's got a really strong voice. I mean, it's all the elements of what you look for in if you're yep. going to make up a story to get into Civil War mm -hmm. history. And I thought, okay, my job here is not to make up a character, but to try to stay as true as I can be to this voice, this person, this man named Freeman Colby, who, you know, before some of my grandparents were born, wrote down this story of something, of the adventure of his life that he had had. And when you were putting together the, the graphic novel, I, I thought it was also interesting. Like, you probably could have gotten away with drawing a lot less. <laughs> you could have drawn a, a page of, and, you know, and, and put a bunch of text under it. But you go, you know, each page is, is like six separate panels. It tells the story like in little chunks. So why did you make that decision to sort of approach it, approach it that way? Oh, that's interesting because I thought you were going to finish that sentence by <laughs> saying you could have gotten away with drawing a whole lot more. I, my experience in drawing it was... I want to draw this person's story, but I want to, I want to draw the whole story and I don't want to take 20 years mm -hmm. to pencil it and ink it and laboriously render it. Um, because that's not really how I imagined it. I want to draw as little as possible. Mm -hmm. And so my approach to that was, well, I'm going to break it up into little pieces, mm -hmm. kind of daily comic strip style. Mm -hmm. And when he has a sentence, maybe that's one panel or maybe mm -hmm. that sentence breaks down into ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, like, for instance, I have to look specifically at pages, I guess. So, first page, first panel, he says, when the war broke out. Mm -hmm. Thinking, well, what do I draw for that? You could draw any <laughs> any amount of details for that. Right. Um, or you could have a whole huge page with a picture of armies clashing together. Right, right, or you right. could have a map. But I thought, well, I'm not really sure what he's talking about there. Like, is he talking about secession? Is he talking about Fort Sumter? This is a civil war. Is he talking about when the first New Hampshire regiments were organized? Maybe I just draw as little as possible. I'll just draw like an explosion, mm -hmm. like a little boom, bursting shell or something. We won't get into who was watching it or what. But in the next panel, he says, I was helping my father with work of the farm. Well, I don't know. He doesn't say what that work was. <laughs> you go to draw this stuff and you realize I have no idea. He, Maybe they're making skis. Maybe they're growing peanuts. I don't know. Um, but I found, a, I found a photograph of oxen on a farm in Henniker from a little after that time. So, okay, they had oxen. So I draw them tending an ox, you know, in this panel. And then the cool thing that happens in comics, I mean, when you look at that, he's tending the ox, but he's looking to the side, 
and he's looking at the panel where there's this explosion going on. Mm -hmm. And that, I, I tell my students that that happens kind of not accidentally, but it's not something I draw. It's as I'm drawing it, that happens. And that mm -hmm. means the characters are starting to move across the page and do things autonomously. Mm -hmm. Like he's looking at that explosion and watching the war burst break out. And then that chemistry between the panels kind of propels you into the next panel. Mm -hmm. And if you told me to sit down and read a 40 page diary, uh, you know, I would say, well, maybe I'll do it in a couple sittings. Maybe I have something else I have to do. I just read a page. I'll put a bookmark in. I'll go. But in comics, you get through that first page. And if I'm drawing it, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm drawing you from panel to panel, you can't stop reading. Mm -hmm. you, you have to keep going to find out what happens next because we connect differently to images. Yeah, that's so, for sure. So I think, yeah, that's interesting to hear. So you think I could have drawn fewer <laughs> panels. Probably fewer panels. I assume yeah. you mean the, the the panels themselves, you know, are simple. Yeah. But there's a lot of them, <laughs> so right. so it keeps that the story flowing in that way. Well, in this first book, I think the book I had done before uh, that I that I mentioned earlier, I was drawing a, a graphic novel um, out in Eastern Europe about my experiences in Eastern Europe, and I had a hard time figuring out how to approach the pages. But I found I was living in and around all these apartment buildings mm -hmm. that just had endless walls of windows and so I realized the pages had to sort of mirror that and I did like three by four 12 little panels across the page and then I tell the story in little tiny chunks little tiny pieces yeah. and that seemed to fit so that's probably coming out of that practice you'll see a lot of pages with smaller panels smaller ideas in them um, and now I'm, I'm starting to work on volume two now and getting into using more full pages and bigger panels because okay. it's much more artistically detailed. So speaking of which, something I always like to ask our guests are what materials are you using to draw it? And also, did you use different materials for the cover image versus the inside? All of this was drawn basically with um, flare felt tip pens on typing paper. I, I do a lot of teaching and I, um, and I tell my students it's really important to me as an artist to just use the materials in the world around me. So I don't have to, when I'm traveling, I don't have to carry bottles of special ink and find special pens and the certain type of Bristol paper. I'll just use whatever I can find, scrap paper or, or nice paper. Um, so I just get these cheap water-based ink flare pens and then I draw pretty quickly. Um, and if I need to make changes, I'll just patch over that with another piece of paper or redraw it entirely uh, because I want that mix of, it, it should, I feel like I'm happiest when it feels kind of immediate and spontaneous and a little bit risky, like you're trying something you haven't maybe fully thought out and suddenly something surprising happens in the picture. Um, and I want that to come across on the page. So, so the writing you'll see is definitely handwritten and the characters are, a little, are very flexible. I mean, they're stick figures basically because it's not about, for me, it's not about like exactly how thick Freeman Colby's neck was. I don't want to get into those sculpting anatomical details. I want you to see him as a human, like you, the reader, you know, so you can put yourself into his position. Um, and and I think because, I, I don't know if I'm drawing stick figures with Bristol board and a fine quill pen, that's kind of silly. I, I'll just use the cheapest pens I can find. Because <laughs> um, I found, like, like I think you're you're sort of saying too, it's not so much about the art, it's about the story. Mm -hmm. And if, if um, gosh, if this diary sat on a shelf for, you know, I think, I think this diary has been unread for a while. There's this, the, what I was using was a transcript that's 
you know, decades old, um, and I've never found anyone else who's read it. But if I take the time, I take about two years to draw it out. Um, and now I was just in a school the past couple of weeks where there's all these third graders who are total Freeman Colby fans. And <laughs> I met some fifth graders who were like, I've read that book four times because they've gone through, they're reading his diary. These are the actual words from his diary. But because somebody who cares took the time to say, I think these words look a little like this. And I think these words look a little like this and then put it together into a comics format. It draws you in. I mean, as a teacher, that must be just a great tool to get kids, particularly that age, mm -hmm. to get them interested in any subject, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, the, the fifth graders I've been working with uh, in Hockington, New Hampshire, they're all they're studying the Revolutionary War. So they were. we use this as a model, and I showed them how I worked on the diary, and then um, they take that into the Revolutionary War, and some of them came up with these really cool ways to show, like, the Battle of Bunker Hill from the perspective of the trenches of one side and, mm -hmm. and what it looked like. It's just really cool seeing how they take that and do something I never would have thought of. Mm -hmm. I, I Just, a, you know, in, in reading sort of your bio and, and some of your background and you talk about, you know, how some of your workshops, you combine, you know, storytelling and performance and communication and you are a musician. How do you bring all those things together when you're working with, with students of, of different ages? It seems like... That would be a challenge, but there's a potential for some great outcomes there. Yeah, I think it's, um, I don't mean this, well, maybe I do mean this as a criticism of our educational system. <laughs> I think our educational system has done a good job of taking those things apart and saying, well, this is music class. For the next 45 minutes, we're going to study music. And then the bell will ring and you'll put down your oboe or your guitar and you'll go into another room and then we'll study history. And then, oh, the bell just rang. Now we go to study art. And oh, the bell just rang. Now we'll go to study math or whatever. Um, and and really, I mean, human experience isn't compartmentalized like that. You're, you, like Freeman Colby's experience is very much something. It's a performance that he's doing, but it's something that he wants you to read as as a narrative. You know, and that narrative doesn't necessarily obey strict um, subject mm -hmm. um, compartments. So so um, so I think. It has to have a story to it. And once it has a story, uh, if you're engaging with that story in a human way, you have to be imagining what it looks like. You have to be responding in some way. My favorite thing when I'm demoing um, comics in an assembly or something, and I, I always ask somebody else to read them to me. Mm -hmm. So I'll get some, a student or a teacher to come up and read the comic rather than me read it to you and say what it says. Because I, I know what it says, but I want to make sure it works on you. And I... I know it's going to work because it's comics I've tried out before, but they read it to me and I tell them whenever I see them like acting out what's in the comic, I'll say, what do you see in that picture? And they say, oh, they're raising their hands like this and they'll do it. I always say, well, there, you didn't just describe it with words. You felt it in your body and your body acted because when you see something like there's that motor control area of your yep. brain that is either if it's properly disconnected, you don't have to act out what you're seeing. But like they tell us neurologically, it's the same thing to see an action as to practice it, mm -hmm. um, just not in your body. But comics kind of break that down and you see something you're excited about and your body responds and you're acting it out. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think it's maybe closely, maybe it's related to how, you know, some cartoonist, when you're drawing a face, you find you're making that face yourself. Do you do that? <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I think I'm the only one who does this, but I actually, I've noticed that when I'm drawing, 
I'll like my tongue will sort of stick out, and I'll be yeah, yeah. I just sort of, like, that's my way of concentrating doing it. So even if the character's tongue isn't sticking yeah, out, yeah, yeah. I just it's 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 this weird. I don't know. I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone else does it, but it's just it's sort of this involuntary reaction when mm-hmm. I'm very focused on my drawing, and that's my that's the way I sort of get focused on it and start doing it and then time sort of seems to disappear all of a sudden if I'm working late at night thinking oh you know I don't want to stay up too late all of a sudden you know hours go by right I imagine you find yourself immersed in the sort of in the story that you're trying to tell yeah that's that's what you strive for Mm -hmm. right that you're not sitting here thinking boy this chair is awfully comfy boy (laughs) oh I like the black of that ink oh this paper is nice and white like that just disappears and you are there whatever you're drawing you're there in the story Mm -hmm. Um, and the same thing should happen when you're reading I think it's the same, similar kind of creative enterprise being like, what kind of marks did this other person make on this, on this paper surface here? And what do I think of those? And you're building meaning, right? And if you understand what the marks mean, you're in the story. But any little bump uh, that you can't read or you don't understand kind of jumps you out and you realize you're holding a page. I mean, yeah. that's, that's sort of how I, I feel like a, a story has really grabbed me if I'm reading it at the, at the gym like on the treadmill, and I look up and I've, I've been running for 45 minutes and I didn't realize it. I said, oh, that's pretty good, pretty good Or you're story. sitting on the exercise bike not, not doing anything. Right. That may, yeah, sometimes I just stop and I'll read for an hour and so people are like, excuse me. You are you going to use that? Yeah, I, I, you really need to get up. Or, or even better, excuse me, I, hey, what are you reading? Oh, wow, that looks right. great. So just go to join a book club. It's really no point, no point going to the gym. I kind of wished for a while. I worked a desk job out of college and I kept thinking like, you know, I kind of wish my computer would run off a stationary bike generator and I could be sitting here like <laughs> nine hours a day getting exercise and maybe there's a cutoff. So it also, if I stop, it doesn't shut down my computer. But I thought that would be such a, such an energy saving device. And I get lots of good exercise. Right. Well, we need to do something yeah. <laughs> because I know I'm not getting enough exercise sitting. You sitting can't, here. you can't really ink your comics while like no. running on a treadmill. Though. Yeah, that, that is, that is tricky. Yeah, I can't, I, even like I'm, you know, a train or a bus or something, I can't ink. I can maybe sketch, obviously write, not ink. Yeah. That's where I, I like take the source text and I read through it and I mark it up and I just doodle little ideas, but I try to plan as little as possible. So when I come to draw the, draw the source text and get the story, um, it's, you know, like this conversation, we didn't script it out. Like then you could say this and then you can say that. I want the art to have that same feel that I didn't, I find it, I've tried, I've scripted out things and said, okay, that's what I'll do in each page and each panel. And then it just clunks on the page. It's like, why am I even drawing this? I just planned it. <laughs> out, you know? And that's, I think that's why I chose to do it, um, like to draw as little as possible to do it in stick figure style, mm-hmm. because I knew I wanted, I wanted it to sort of feel like from, from my travel comics, I like the feeling of like, you're looking over someone's shoulder into their travel journal. And boy, they drew that on a bumpy bus. Yeah, look how shaky it is. Okay, maybe not every page is like that, but the bumpy bus scene, sure, I like that. Right. And I wanted this to sort of feel like that, like he, like almost like Freeman Colby drew a comics diary and sent that home right. instead of Right, letters. yeah, you definitely get that feel yeah. looking at it. Oh, good. Did you ever try to look up uh, his um, descendants? Yes. Yeah, I've had, um, I've met some of them. Actually, the whole reason I'm doing Volume 2 is through them, thanks to them, because I got to the end of uh, the diary, and it says I kind of I hedged my bets. It says at the end, it just suddenly breaks off, uh, where you know there's a fight between the colonel and the doctor, or a captain and the doctor, a surgeon in the regiment, 
the surgeon leaves and there's no wrap up or anything. And, uh, and he goes on to serve another two and a half years in the army in the middle of the civil war. So at the end, I just said, Oh, Freeman Colby's adventures continue in his letters. Cause I knew there were letters out there and the historical society had some. Um, and then I, one of his great grandchildren, I believe came across this book somewhere. I forget where they came across it, but they ordered a couple copies for the family. And then they sent me this envelope of about 80 pages of letters that they had that were also transcribed at the same time as the diary, I think by the same person. Um, and actually, we, I traded them some books for the letters. So that was a great investment yeah, nice. because I charted out those letters and, um, you know, it goes from, it's 1863, 1864, 1865, right to the end of the war. And there's some other materials that can supplement that. But that's, that's where it gets interesting, actually. Because the, uh, the diary, I was just going from page to page I, I thought, okay, he's my tour guide, right? He's going to give me, he's going to tell the story. And my job is to stay close to this um, very unique voice, this character who's telling this story, this 21-year-old school teacher who finds himself in the middle of the nation's most violent conflict. Um, and then when I went to do the letters, I realized letters are totally different from a diary and wait a minute this diary was not like a pocket diary he wrote during the war when you go back and look there are all these little clues and I realized comparing it to his gravestone and the other clues in the record he actually wrote this diary 50 years after the war oh. and called it his diary which totally changes how I think about this story like if I ask you to tell a story from 50 years ago how close is that gonna be to the truth mm -hmm. right or, or 50 years from now, say what happened today. Oh, well, I have a couple little email records, so I think I can combine that with my memories. It's not going to be at all close to the truth, especially if it's a story you've practiced and told other people. So it's a performance of a story. And that, then I went back to the letters and I said, okay, the other thing is letters are written in the present tense and they don't have that 50 years of editing that goes into them. So on the one hand, they don't have any real historical awareness. On the other hand, they're deep into the moment. Um, and the problem with the letters, though, is I have a letter from May 1863, and the next one is August, and the next one is September or October. Right. And then there's a couple in November. Like, Wait a minute. That's not the story. So that was that's what Volume 2 is all about. So do you connect those dots to a, to a certain extent in Volume 2, or just sort of... Uh, jump from one to the next and leave it to the reader to uh, imagine what might have happened in between. Well, it's it's different because with the diary, I think the project was, okay, you've connected the dots. So I'm going to do follow the path that you've connected if you're the storyteller and you wrote this diary. Um, but if you don't give me that roadmap, if you don't give me that guided tour, then I'm going to go poke around and I'm going to find things you never would have told me, right? And maybe they have something to do with your story or maybe not, but they are definitely there. And I found that was my, that was my um, goal ultimately, not necessarily to follow the path that Freeman Colby would have put into his letters, writing home to his younger sisters, mm -hmm. but maybe find some of the things he purposefully didn't put into his diary and didn't put into his letters and show that they're there mm -hmm. also. Um, now, when are we, that hasn't been published yet. Not yet, right. So that, and that, it's, it's nice to be talking about it, you know, right around Veterans Day as we're recording this. Um, but it actually, I'm, I'm not rushing it for the holiday season. I'm going to wait until 
uh, right now the plan is February to have a um, a Kickstarter for the first print. Okay. It's basically all drawn. I'm doing the edits. I'm doing. There's a bunch of cool uh, tie-ins that are going to be right. available. Well, I think. Yes, definitely keep us posted. Yeah, I will. Sure. <laughs> As that comes out, I'm really excited for that to come out finally. We also wanted to talk a little since we're. Uh, it's interesting when we started this podcast, we we thought it would concentrate um, almost exclusively on comic strips, and we've really expanded that to illustration and graphic novels, and, and uh, that's been fun. But just to talk a little bit, because you've also done a strip uh, called Mimi's Donuts, mm-hmm. um, which I was reading a little bit online, but it's not your typical sort of set up punchline Mm-mm. kind of comic strip. So maybe just talk a, a little bit about how, how you approach that, because th- those have been collected too, right, into a book? Yeah, I did that as a, a Zarek, Zer- with the Zarek Award program, um, your, ancient history now, <laughs> years ago. Um, yeah, I did that. Um, my wife at the time, uh, Denise, grew up as a kid. Her family ran a couple donut shops in Claremont, New Hampshire. So she and her sisters were telling all these stories about it and um, and I, we kept saying like, oh, this would make a great movie. Oh, this would make a great comic strip. And then I thought, you know, maybe I'll just try that. Not necessarily drawing out those stories specifically, but take building some characters in and then taking some stories from my life and her life and other things that happened, um, sometimes topical stuff. Um, and just I just self-syndicated it to some newspapers in Vermont and New Hampshire, did it as a weekly, kind of in some alt-weekly papers, and then... Um, Valley News and Keen Sentinel and a couple daily papers would run it in their Sunday sections Mm -hmm. as a local feature they could plug in. Um, And I started doing them in color at some point because some Valley News was running them in color, I think, which is kind of shocking when you're first getting into color and you see it in newsprint and the colors are all different because you didn't realize (laughs) RGB versus CMYK or something. Um, But yeah, it was, you know, it was an attempt. My, My first serious comics experience was in college where I just remember very clearly reading the student paper and thinking how oh, these these daily comic strips students are drawing they're they're okay but there's nothing that really speaks to me you know I wish someone would do like a, a long-running space opera action adventure strip wouldn't that be cool and then I remember like walking home from the dining hall that night thinking wait a minute if I'm I'm the one who should do that. Then I, I haven't drawn comics in years, but I mean, if that's what I want to see, I guess no, nope, I should stop complaining about it. So I, I, I drew my first strips, I think, like in ballpoint on notepad paper or something, uh, and I kind of tremblingly approached the student newspaper building and knocked on the door, and an editor came out and and they looked them over and they were like, "Yeah, okay, we'll put these in tomorrow's paper. Can you bring some tomorrow night?" I just remember thinking, like, "Oh, wow, what have I got?" Now I have to do more of these. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I, I think I ended up doing more work on comics than any of my majors. You know, yeah, we can relate to that. that. Yeah. Okay, so that's a common thing. <laughs> David and I went to yeah. school uh, at Tufts together. That's where we first met. Yeah. Um, and they had a page uh, in the weekly paper there called the Etc. Page, which was humor, comic strips. You know, funny illustrations and stuff, and uh, that's basically how we yeah, spent uh, yeah, a good chunk I, of our as college. As long as my career. parents aren't listening, the coursework was secondary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, did you do your homework first and then do the strip, or did you do the strip and uh, then try this to get homework? To... You speak. <laughs> <laughs> we somehow got it all done. I don't recall how. But, uh, but yeah, because it's fun, and it's—I mean—that's what. And when I go out and and speak to college students. 
about journalism or really any anything, I give them the advice that this is a great opportunity for you when you're in school to pursue these things that you enjoy and and you're, you're given the tools to do it and these outlets that you may or may not ever ever have again and, yeah. and here's your opportunity to draw or to write or to do multimedia these days or, or right. whatever. That's always my sort of number one piece of advice to college students in particular. Take advantage of the, the opportunities. And you never know where it's going to lead. Right. Because you know. you're, you're paying for it anyways. That's <laughs> right. why there's this huge price tag. Like there's all these opportunities. So, exactly. Yeah, that's you might as well use them. That's what I figure. They Clearly, they like there would be a house ad on the comics page. And I think like that's an invitation. That's a call for help. Um, <laughs> And I, I actually used it. Yeah, I, I was totally unserious about art. I'd drawn all my life, but I hadn't really sat. I'd started all these first issues of my superhero series in middle school and stuff. <laughs> but I never sat down and like had a regular deadline or even really had a readership that was waiting to see what happened next. Um, but I found I would, I would I'd end up like, I'd do my homework and then I'd do the strip for the next day's paper and around midnight I'd bike over to the newspaper offices and they'd all be up eating cold pizza and like <laughs> typing into their computers. They had computers back then. Um, and it was such just a rush to to draw something in that sleep-deprived state and then <laughs> turn it in and the next morning you're like rubbing your eyes over the breakfast tray and you're like, wait a minute, that's what I drew last night. It was a pretty fast turnaround with yeah. that kind of student. Uh, yeah, no, it is a thrill. You know, it is. It's, it's exciting to, to see your stuff out there. It's stuff that's been living in your head for who knows how long and then all of a sudden here it is for, uh, you know, consumption of anyone and everyone who comes across it. And I think that that's why we do a lot of the things we do. We need that sort of have it validated in a certain, to a certain extent. But also you just have, you know, people have stories they want to tell. Well, everybody has their own way of telling. I was. I told my students yesterday we got together for a closing assembly in the gym, and we put a digital projector up and projected some of their Revolutionary War comics on the wall to read through, like the events leading up to the Civil War, uh, the Revolutionary War, <coughs> as drawn by a bunch of fifth graders who were studying it. Um, and I told them, you know, there's this, uh, there's this recent news article I just overheard on on the radio about the oldest ever, the world's oldest drawing of an animal was just found in Indonesia on a cave wall in Indonesia. And I don't want to make assumptions about what that drawing was for, but from what I've seen of cave art, like it wasn't just somebody doodling on a wall. It was a focused activity that sometimes happens over centuries. These caves are decorated and they've, they've analyzed the acoustics of these caves. And then a lot of them, the paintings happen at the most echoey acoustically interesting spaces and that's not accident because that that tells us like people were gathering there to sing or something right so so i was i told the students that or or to sing or make speeches or who knows what some kind of performance i told the students like what we're doing here in this gym projecting your your comics on the wall this is actually one of the most ancient forms of human art like gathering around <laughs> illuminated images on the wall um, and that's that's a powerful thing people respond to it or gathering over sweet cereal and, and reading through the student newspaper and finding little doodles on that I think it's related you know it's it's you see people reacting to these images and and, the, and then as comics artists you know that that thrill of being like and then 
I'll put a, a like a, a cliffhanger at the end, and they won't know what happens next, and they'll all be asking about it, but they'll have to wait till tomorrow. That's such a charge, you know. Um, so just to say, there's a segue there. You talk about music, and before we uh, started the podcast today, you told us that you brought your banjo with you today. Well, I may, I may have. Oh, yeah, there it is over there. I think we need to bring that out. Sure. Tell us a little bit about your... your In fact, I, I was all set to tell you I was disappointed you didn't bring your banjo, and then sure enough... It's here. I see I you have one in the corner. Here. Yes. <laughs> so you, you need to bring that out and tell us a little bit about your musical side. And maybe what, how it's different and how it's similar to art and cartooning and, and drawing. Sure. What, what areas of your brain it, it uses and, and doesn't use. Sure. All right. We may want to take a break while I tune it up. Yes. Then. Go right ahead. <laughs> All right. We will. Uh, that's a good time for us to pause for station identification. Or, or some such thing, and we'll be right back with Merrick on the bench. Okay, we are back on Strip Search, the comic strip podcast with Yank and Dave London and our special guest Merrick Bennett. We wanted to talk a little bit about music, because in addition to being an illustrator and a cartoonist and a teacher, you're also a musician. Yeah. And we were wondering, how is that different and how is that similar to your artistic endeavors? Well, I've always said comics are pure space, right? And music is pure time, mm-hmm. unless you're dancing and then you bring space into it. Um, but uh, I think, so I think they're very complementary in that way. But then I, I use it, you know, like the, this banjo that I brought in is a replica I built from a kit of an 1848 banjo. So it's a few years old. So it's, you know, how it would have looked maybe in the late 50s, uh, 1850s. And, uh, and, and I play it a style I used, um, I, I learned from an old 1855 banjo instruction manual. So the style sounds a little like this. It goes like... It's a very simple. Uh, so I think the first connection I make is I'm just using two fingers. It's a two finger technique that comes out of West African string playing because uh, this is an Afro Caribbean instrument. So a lot of the first players were um, brought uh, a musical heritage from Western Africa um, through the slave plantations of the Caribbean, um, and they played the first banjos there. And so it's like, I, I always think of it as it's it's lower pitch than a modern banjo, and you just use two fingers, so it's sort of like drawing with a big, thick marker, and you can't do really fancy stuff, but you can do little figures and shapes, and you can get an idea across. Um, you, have, you have four strings and a drone string, that high drone string. Um, and by doing all those figures, uh, they're pretty simple figures. and forth with those two fingers but if you put them together in interesting ways you get these complex rhythms and you see that like when you're doing stick figure comics on the page you put those panels together to get certain rhythms on the page and you can play with or against those rhythms and you do that with the music too Um, and I think that the content connection is obviously I'm interested in the Civil War and stories that come out of that period. It's not coincidence that I got into Civil War music, and that's <laughs> yeah. that's what I present with my band, The Hard Techs, um, for New Hampshire Humanities. I brought you guys a CD, actually. Mm-hmm. So I'll see that. Um, and, and that actually helps me a lot to understand how people talk and how they shared information 
because they weren't just writing letters back and forth or writing diaries or reading books. They were singing and moving. Like music was a fundamental part of life, like breathing, eating, sleeping. It was something you did constantly if you weren't talking or doing other things with your voice. Um, people would be singing as they worked, singing as you traveled, singing wherever people got together. Um, and I'm playing instrumental music too. So, um, so it's a way to understand that. And then to see how they tell stories. I, in my comics, I tell stories panel by panel sequentially in music with the songs that people were singing, especially the banjo and fiddle music of the time. You tell stories verse by verse, line by line. Um, and I like one of the things I do when I do travel comics is I want to learn, um, like I did this a lot in Slovakia in the graphic novel I did about Slovakia is I learned folk songs as a way to learn language, but also as a way to learn like what's important to people, what do you care about, what do you sing about, um, and what does that tell you about modern life, learning these old folk songs that have persisted. And then uh, sort of like I was saying with, with um, expanding into letters and looking for the story that's not told, those songs address certain things, but then they leave certain things out but the music is there. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at a lot of old time tunes or, or banjo folk tunes that Pete Seeger is singing um, or, you know, any, any banjo player of the 20th century, they're kind of building on a foundation that includes the story of slavery and includes the story of all this injustice that lays under the surface. But the banjo appears to be in the 20th century. You think of bluegrass banjo, it's this perky, all white instrument, right? <laughs> so what is hidden under that surface? Yeah. You have to dig below the modern instrument and see the precursors to it. And that's where I come to those low notes of the old banjo and the old banjo. So, what can we hear a little? Sure, yeah. I'm not going to try to sing for you. I'm getting over a cold. So <laughs> I could do uh, my Johnny Cash impersonation with this deep voice, but I'll just play a little. I'm going to tune down a little more. Play you uh, an 1860 song. Oh, I gotta decide on one. No, I'll play you an 1850s song. That's We'd have known the out. difference too. You wouldn't know, yeah. <laughs> I'm more partial to the 1850s. <laughs> this is a 1492 song. <laughs> Thank you. 
that that turned into a, an 1860s song. That was Green Corn Buckley's Green Corn Jig. Oh, which, that's um, excellent. And then and then that last one was um, um, Buckley's Reel. That that was an 1850s. Well, that was. I'm sorry, Briggs Reel. Well, that was definitely a first for the Strip Search podcast. Yeah, that was, Unless uh, I'm, I'm forgetting another no, banjo no, we, player. We have not had a, okay. any musicians, I don't think. So. They all kind of blur together. <laughs> After a while. Yeah. Well, Merrick, thank you so much for coming in. This was a, a terrific chat, and a, it was just uh, fascinating to hear some about some of the stuff. Now, where can people, people want to learn more about you and your stuff, where can they find it? Uh, first place would be my website which I guess we can post a link to. And, Absolutely. Uh, it's Merrick, M-A-R-E-K, Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T. So MerrickBennett.com. Um, and then I've got links there to uh, Instagram and face whatevers and all that <laughs> stuff. I'm also doing a, a Patreon. I'm, I'm testing the waters with Patreon for this volume too. Um, and I'm posting now through, uh, it was originally supposed to be till the end of the year. It's going to go beyond. I'm posting a, um, pages from volume two and you can kind of read along some of them are for patrons only and a lot of them are public um you can get a taste of the book through that uh and i'll definitely i'll send you guys a link once the kickstarter is ready to go for volume two sounds good and in the meantime if you're listening go to petpeevescomic.com slash podcast to listen to all of our podcasts and to see links to all of Merrick's other work and all the other stuff that we do Thank you very much again. And thank you for what you do, yeah. That was our pleasure. And uh, everybody else, we'll see you next month on another episode of Scripture.